This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Um, I just want to take a moment and introduce our guest, uh, Ezra Edelman. In addition to OJ Made in America, which, as I mentioned before, was today nominated for five Critics' Choice Documentary Awards. Bravo. Um, Mr. Mr. Edelman also directed two films in 2014, Requiem for the Big East and The Opposition, which aired as part of ESPN's 30 for 30 series. Um, He produced the documentary Cutie and the Boxer, which was nominated for an Academy Award the year before. And he's also produced and directed three films for HBO, uh, Magic and Bird, A Courtship of Rivals, which received a Peabody Award and was nominated for three Emmys. Um, the amazing uh, Brooklyn Dodgers Lords of, or Ghost of Flatbush, which won an Emmy, and the curious case of Kurt Flood about the um, Cardinals player who sued Major League Baseball in federal court all the way up to the Supreme Court over the reserve clause. Um, before beginning work in documentaries, he spent seven years as a producer on the news magazine show Real Sports with Brian Gumbel and won four Emmys during that time. He also graduated from Yale, where I assume he took a history class or two, but we can talk about that. Um, And we're really thrilled to have him here tonight. So please help me welcome Ezra Edelman. Um, I want to start maybe with the, the genesis of the project, since this is kind of different for ESPN in terms of the, the length of the project and, the, and really the scope. So if you could maybe tell us a little bit about where the project started for you and how you convinced them to let you do a five-episode, seven-plus-hour documentary for the series. I think you have it backwards. They convinced me. Oh, they, okay. Uh, they, it was there. It was a guy named Connor Shell who um, was one of the few people, three people who started the 30 for 30 franchise and is the um, executive vice president of ESPN Films. He, I'd known Connor for a while, and as you said, done some work with him. And he, I think they, he wanted to do something more ambitious. Uh-huh. They had done sort of 75 some odd feature length films as part of the 30 for 30 series, and I think he was looking to, you know, just do something bigger, and he 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 called me up and said, "I'm I'm interested in doing a five-hour film," and that was interesting to me immediately. Um, I was interested in the sort of just the challenge of telling a story over that duration of time, um, and then I asked him what he was thinking about in terms of subject matter, and he said OJ, and then I ceased to be interested, uh, and it took me uh, it took me a little bit. Because I uh, probably, and maybe not so much everyone here, a lot of whom, a lot of you guys are students, um, if you were around in 94, 95, you got a lot of OJ. And uh, I didn't think there was much more to say about it, having lived through it and understanding the discussion surrounding it. And so I thought, what's the point? Um, but really that sort of the audacity of the conceit of that initial um, sort of desire to do something that long. Um, that's that the canvas attracted me because I realized I didn't have to focus on 
these questions that people seem to have obsessed over, questions of mm-hmm. guilt and innocence mm-hmm. and sort of wanting to regurgitate the trial. And like that wasn't what I was interested in. What I was interested in was the history, was the context, was sort of marrying a, a sort of different narrative strands into one cohesive tale to help sort of give some, make some sense out of and give some, I think, needed perspective on the events of not, you know, of the trial and those two years. And so I don't think you could do that without mm-hmm. that initial ambition. And so that's what got me into it. And then it grew. Yeah, well, you succeeded. Can I, can I ask, who has ever, who's seen the all five parts? Okay, so not... Everybody's going to go home tonight and just binge sure. watch the rest of it. six more spare hours. <laughs> it's, it's worth your time. Um, was there any... Because obviously uh, it um, goes to so many different places, um, and a lot of it can be um, you know, heavy and, and stuff like that. Was there any resistance from ESPN at all in terms of the, the content? No, I think I sort of... Uh, no, I think that what's great about even the sort of initial, you know, the mandate and or, you know, behind them doing the 30 for 30 series from the get-go was that they wanted to go out and not talking about me, but like wanted mm-hmm. to go out and get name directors and say, what are the stories you want to do? Just create, create your film based on sort of this moment in time or this team or this player or what have you. And like that's, but it's your film. Do what you're going to do. And in some ways, that has persisted, even as the sort of franchise has grown and you're no longer getting Barry Levinson and Spike mm-hmm. Lee to do these movies. Um, but I don't think he would have come to me in the first place if he didn't have an understanding of the kind of things that I was interested in. And from my standpoint, I wasn't going to sort of get into something which I understood that w- to be extremely challenging yeah. if I weren't going to have free reign to explore. It's not like I didn't tell him what I was going to do or want to do, but I was pretty much left alone, which was nice. That is nice. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about, it, it has an interesting um, place, it premiered at Sundance, and yeah. it appeared on ESPN, and it also ran on ABC as well? Well... Is that, so it's kind of been a hybrid in some ways, it's a miniseries, it's a... It's not a miniseries. It's not. Okay. I mean, I get back to this sort of the first thing you said. Like, uh-huh. I'll tell you within the first conversation I had with them, I'm just like, I have no interest in making a five, like five episodes or five, as you said. So you That's, see, you wouldn't. No, you it was see like it the as? opposite. It was like I wanted to make a five-hour film. Okay. And the film grew to be almost eight hours, but so never was there a conceit that I was making an episodic um, okay. body of work. It was always just. A, and I understand on television, though, you have to air it in a way that's digestible. Mm-hmm. And so at a certain point, there was a need to split it up into five parts. But I think the, the, the great thing about it screening at Sundance is when they screened it, um, when we submitted it, it was like they understood that it was one movie. Mm-hmm. And that's what they screened it as. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when it got to television, and so, yeah, it aired on ESPN, but so what they did was they aired the first part on ABC um, just to sort of increase viewership, mm-hmm. and then the, the following parts were aired. But immediately... After the second episode, they streamed the whole thing, so you could watch it unedited there. So yeah, I just think it's an interesting, you know, form that it got to take. It got to show in different 
Well, I mean, if I had my druthers, I would love for people to for it to have played straight. Yeah. And I, but I get yeah. that you can't really do that, just like you can't on television, on commercial television, air things without commercials. Right. Like as much as I would want to have that be the case too. Yeah. So you're sort of dealing with what you're given, but the fact that they were open um, to releasing it theatrically um, before we sort of even figured out when and how it was going to air mm-hmm. was great. My question is really, I mean, how you could make all those decisions about cutting all the material um, you must have had. Um, and then, so if you could talk about some of those decisions in the editing room or in the planning stages that were made with editing in mind. Um, and then also, I mean, if there was anything that was especially difficult to leave out or you really were like, you know, obviously with like eight hours. Um, well, I'll try to answer this second thing first. Uh-huh. Um, I, uh, most of the stuff, yes, in doing an air film, most of the stuff you want in the film it's in the film. Yeah. Uh, there were some things that I took out, but it wasn't because of time. I mean, really, this is going to sound kind of strange. It's a really long thing, but it was also sort of worked on pretty, you know, sort of uh, meticulously to the point of trying to get it to be what it should have been. Yeah. And so the things that were taken out were based on narrative and story and based on just trying to shave it down to the proper rhythm of each part, you know, within the body of the whole thing. So there weren't as many things that were like, oh, I don't want to. I mean, there are thematic things where I might have wanted to, knowing going in that there was going, that one of the many themes of this sort of like the offshoot theme of celebrity is the media and and sort of, and like what happened with the trial and how this became, you know, this sort of, this media circus as we sort of get to in the film. And I would have, you know, and people think of the trial as this transformational moment in terms of media and the 24-hour news cycle, and the birth of reality television, they sort of heap this, love, this layer of it, this importance on what this wrought. And so, you know, that's a whole rabbit hole you could go down for it, but it's like, that's a different thing. Yeah. And that's also slightly an analytical thing based on, you know, how it transformed our culture. And that was, for instance, something I decided very quickly, well, that's not what I'm doing. Like, once we get to the trial, I need to sort of focus on what we've built to that point, so whereas I, if you'd come into our office a year and a half ago and, see, and saw all these giant sort of canvas boards with full of note cards of all these people we were thinking about hoping to interview, and there are people in that section that were you know, broadcasters and journalists whose careers were made based on this trial, like we didn't end up interviewing any of them because mm. they just weren't, wasn't where I was going to go. So that's one example on a greater thing where we just sort of left that out because it wasn't what I was going to do. Something that was in the film that I cut a whole scene and actually did go out and interview people about was the notion of whether O.J. suffered head trauma as a result of playing football yeah. and whether he has um, CTE, which symptomatically sort of, in certain people's cases, would explain erotic behavior, often violent behavior, often violent behavior towards spouses. And the thing about that is, um, so we had a three or four minute scene in the movie, and it would have been lovely and narratively satisfying yeah. to sort of take the, all the football you guys saw in this first part and pay it off in a satisfying way in the last part to say, by the way, this all, that's kind of the way my brain thinks. Yeah. Um, but then I thought, well, it's completely speculative. You can't examine people's brains until they're dead. So you can't even can't answer the question. And when you think of symptomatically what happens to football players who do suffer um, from, chronic, from, from um, that disease... 
you know, these symptoms sort of happen at a certain point. And for OJ, if you look at his pattern of abuse, which dated back with her to when they started dating, and the rumors that he allegedly um, abused his first wife as well, this wasn't the product to me mm-hmm. of someone who suffered from the, the abuse wasn't you know, a byproduct of that. And I thought it would have given him, frankly, a cop-out, and it was an easy excuse to explain mm-hmm. something that I think is much more complex than he got knocked on the head a bunch and turned him into a vile person. So I thought that in the end, like, that just shouldn't be in the film. Mm-hmm. I think that would be irresponsible. So that's sort of two different yeah. examples of things that were taken out. And it also speaks to the, the kind of the journalistic responsibility of the film um, and how much you're doing in terms of the, you know, the archival and the sort of historical aspects to it. Well, yeah, I mean, with this more, because something, this story was so, has been reported on and reported on and over-reported on, you know, there's a, there's a threshold that you sort of, you can't really hide from what exists. Everyone knows this story too well to try to sort of create a narrative that might be, you know, it create, you know, and have, have mm-hmm. any subterfuge. It's just like, it is what it is. You, if you don't, if you aren't bound by the truth in that way, people will sniff it out pretty quickly because we all live through all this stuff. Um, and so, yeah, but it's absolutely, there is a, a need to sort of maintain a journalistic rigor in doing this. But you also kind of gave us a massive history um, that when you first hear about this series, I thought, well, I don't really know if I need to watch it because I watched every second of the trial and it ruined all of my television because it overwrote, you know, it cut into everything. And um, so, but once you start watching it, you realize this is so much more than, um, than the trial. And it puts it in the context of police corruption and the criminal justice system and celebrity and sports and race in America and race in Los Angeles. And so I, I really appreciated, I think... I, I, I appreciated the historical um, mission that you had, and do you do you have that? In a lot of your other work, you're, it's historical. And what is your connection to kind of being a historian or thinking like a historian that you see animating your work? Where does that kind of come from? It's just what I mean. I mean, I was a history major in college. Mm-hmm. I don't. I can't oh, yeah. speak to where it came from. It just sort of it is. As Humanities far, major. Is, is for that's right. Uh, you can find a you know something to do with yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, you you can. That there are jobs to do. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I don't. I don't, I can't speak to. I mean, except like history, as you know, is just that's us and who we are, and mm-hmm. to sort of have an understanding of who we are now. You fundamentally have to just understand the world we live in and have lived in, and you know, I think for a story like this, especially, it's this is this is you know, speaks to the importance of history to understand and offer a newfound perspective when even when that history is already there, which we seem not to sort of focus on at the time because we're so consumed by this sort of shiny conversation that's, that was in front of us every mm-hmm. night. And, uh, and I think I understood that fundamentally with this film from the get-go of there was so much more that went into explaining, you know, what happened in 94 and 95 um, that I think people had, had overlooked completely or just sort of com- collectively decided to forget. Um, and that, that I had an opportunity here to sort of s- fill in those gaps. 
Yeah, when you live through the history, you're not necessarily making those connections as you're living it. And so that's what I, that's why I think this whole project does so well. You want to go? So yeah, I, um, sort of speaking to that, um, the, the placement of the Watts riots really early in the film seems so instrumental in how you're situating the OJ story that you're telling. Um, we get the LAPD under Bill Parker, um, Carl Douglas... Gives, just sort of has a testimony. Um, it ties into the geography of, of USC. Um, so the question is, when in the development of the project did you decide to bring Watts into the story of O.J. Simpson, or was it um, there early on for you, like it, before? It was there immediately. Like, as I knew, like, decided that I wanted to do it, I sort of had enough understanding of that period of time, and I knew that O.J. was a guy who went to USC in, you know, in 1967, and what USC was as a school in Los Angeles, where it was located, it next to door to Watts, which had exploded in violence a year and a half before OJ got in there. That's like that's the stuff that got me engaged by, um, you know, in, in telling the story and understanding there's a fundamental connection to um, how OJ was acculturated in this place and the sort of the power dynamic that exists, um, you know, within USC and USC outside of of in, Los, in the city versus sort of the disenfranchisement and the disempowerment of all these black residents that were next door. And that sort of irony and that juxtaposition was pretty alluring and sort of seemingly very um, connected to how we absorbed the trial, you know, 27 mm-hmm. odd years later. And so that was actually one of the driving forces that got me into it. You know, so then you have this, I, then you, I knew that I was going to want to tell the story on these two sort of tracks, one that had to do with OJ and one that had to do with this sort of story of the LAPD and the black community in, in, in Los Angeles. And to sort of get back a little bit to your question before about the editing, which sort of, I, you always have things in mind, but mm-hmm. generally, but not sort of, you know, so specifically. Um, that was sort of, I just knew I wanted to do that. I couldn't tell you how I was going to marry those two narratives before we started editing, and that, frankly, those first 25... I mean, the first 30 minutes really was the trickiest part of the film to get right, because mm. there was all these pieces that I knew I wanted and I was engaged by them, but how do you sort of make sure an audience understands um, fluidly that juxtaposition? And when you're watching a movie that starts off and it's clearly about O.J., you know going in it's about O.J., and then that point nine, ten minutes in where you leave the stadium and then you're sort of going outside... Like that's to the point where you could lose people and go, what is, what's happening here? What, yeah. what are you doing? And so that was the thing that was most important to get right. And by the way, or by contrast, if you were starting with a pure chronology, you would start with all these people coming to L.A. and then you'd get to O.J. But it's O.J.'s story. And so that was a lot of the sort of trying to work that out in terms of um, how far you go before you get to the next part and then how you integrate that. And then from that point, once you've established that the story is going to exist on those two planes, you know, giving you a little freedom mm. to move from there. Mm. Um, so how did you decide where to place the verdict in the overall structure of the film? Because there's such a climactic air to it, uh, the shock of it, the elation of it, and it's a climax for so many people, uh, and yet it's not the real climax of the film. Mm-hmm. Well, what is the real climax of the film? 
I don't know. You, I mean, <laughs> you tell us. Uh, I mean, I think there, uh, it is and it isn't. I mean, mm. you know, in some ways there was an operating principle trying to sort of, that moment that you just saw, which in the documentary comes uh, almost, almost six hours and 45 minutes in already, or like a little less than that, six and a half hours in, um, is in some ways it was what was one of the things I was trying to do, which is take that reaction that I think was so excuse me misunderstood at the time and still to this day misunderstood, and in some ways explain it, in some ways offer an emotional journey where if you were not a person, if not a black person in America, you might have a different understanding of why people were so emotionally invested in that trial and in that outcome. Because I frankly, and this gets back to the question about history, it was um, shocking to me and mildly depressing that there was that sort of dissonance when it came to like that reaction. Because to me, that was something that was you know, understood fundamentally. And so that we existed in the space you know, where there was such, di- even to me, um, sort of divergent understandings of, of what happened 20 years ago, let alone what happened then, um, that was one of the reasons it was built the way it was mm-hmm. built, to utilize the time to take you through these episodes of, of injustice and the, the, the violence that had been suffered at, at the hands of the LAPD and the part of individuals within the black community, and to see sort of this, this cycle that continued and it wasn't just one incident in 1991 when Rodney King was beaten. This was something that was more of a culmination, if not just one more. Mm-hmm. And again, we live, in a, we live in a time now where now we do have access with body cameras and phones to fortunately and terribly unfortunately just of having to absorb this trauma so frequently. You know, when Rodney King was beaten in 1991, part of the thing that made it revelatory in Los Angeles was not the action itself, was just that there was a guy who was videotaping mm-hmm. it. And so that shed light on this thing and this sort of type of behavior that had been happening um, sort of for, for decades. Mm-hmm. And that's a little bit, again, of the importance of the history of the film, to understand, again, even in the era that we're living in, that this is a conversation people have said, this film's so timely. I'm like, well, it should have always been timely. It didn't matter that this is happening now. I mean, in terms of when the film came out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the idea that that didn't start in 91, just like there was the, the Watts riots 27 years before the L.A. riots, and there are all these things that were happening consistently. But I felt that as, if I could take you through that and have you emotionally engage with that history and with those incidents, you know, individually and collectively, by the time you get here, regardless of what you think about O.J., you are existing on a different plane as far as how you're absorbing this trial in this case. Mm-hmm. It's not just about a question of you know, whether this guy murdered two people brutally. There's a lot more going on. And so in sort of maybe for people who were really and not, not improperly disgusted by the sideshow that the trial became, you can really, have, you can really sort of empathize with why people um, sort of align themselves the way they did. Um, so as far as the sort of placement overall, there's mm-hmm. a reason why it comes... There's a, chronolo- there's a basic chronology, but there is a need to build up all that narrative momentum to, to share that release in some form with those people when they're responding to the verdict. Yeah. And so now that it's not the full culmination of the film, gets back to how the film begins, which is very clear. I, I understood that I 
was making a film that was going to continue past the verdict. And I didn't want someone to, based on how we think about this story, that's where the story ends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that wasn't the story I was telling. And so that's why it starts off with that parole hearing. Because you, great, you understand he's in jail. And that's where we're going we're gonna to end up there. Not what you just saw. Mm-hmm. And so that was just part of just so you can subtly let an audience know that you have a little more time to go. Mm-hmm. So can you talk to us about the process of approaching the jurors or talking to the jurors and... Uh, sure. I mean, I would, I would say, and not to sort of, you know, it's funny talking about the jurors collectively is, you know, gets you to a space of that I try and do, you know, not do in the film, which is that these were very much individuals. With, yeah, you know, the jurors sort of, that you were able to and, talk and my, to. No, right. But, sort of, but, but, but they were sort of categorized monolithically. Mm-hmm. And then in sort of the final jury, jury that voted to acquit him, there was uh, nine African-Americans, eight African-American women. Um, and so, you know, it ended up that people just sort of looked at it and said it was a black jury. Um, having said that about the individuals, like the jurors collectively were, along with the prosecution, but the jurors were by far the hardest people to access. Um, we couldn't even track everyone down. Um, there, was a, there was a pretty collect, there was a pretty strong reluctance to speak on the part of all of them. Um, the two women who were in the film Yolanda Crawford and Carrie Bess, um, both black women, two completely opposite personalities mm-hmm. in terms of who they are, what their life experiences are and were, and um, how they absorbed the trial. And Yolanda was 24 at the time, the one I was asking those questions to there, and she was the youngest member of the jury. And she was pretty hip to everything that was happening in the courtroom the whole time, as far as the tactics of the defense and the prosecution and all the sort of, again, getting even to the clip before about going to Rockingham and changing the pictures. Um, and so I think she really sort of parsed the case very um, intellectually and sort of listened to the evidence and sort of the, the stuff that didn't add up to her and found, you know, you know just thinking about even the way that they used um, Mark Furman, who was the detective who found the, the key piece of evidence, which is the, the bloody glove at Rockingham, which matched the... Um, glove that was at the murder scene. Um, the idea that you have a detective with a past that includes racial animus who was found to perjure himself during the trial and ultimately took the fifth, including on a question about whether he planted evidence. Um, you, know, you know, the way that there might be an obviousness to the evidence when people look at it and say, well, of course he was guilty. So in another part, another scene, we're talking to jurors that she says every, the whole world thinks we're a group of idiots. Um, but like she really thought this out, and in some ways her her decision was very rational and intellectual. Carrie Best, by contrast, who is an, one of the older members of the jury, um, who came from Missouri, left Missouri after you know sort of being engaged in a marriage where she was abused. She was a sharecropper and picked cotton when she was a child. She had a completely different life experience, and she's a little kookier than. Than Yolanda is, and she was. By the by the way, yes, there. Yolanda was actually. We we found her sort of relatively late in the process, but she was the only person who was sort of matter of factly willing to do an interview after sort of we met with her and talked, and it was sort of a normal engagement. And she said, "Okay," actually, kind of like with us a little bit after I was 
kind of saying, like, so after we had a lovely lunch, and would you be willing to sit down and do an interview on camera? And she looked at me, and she was like, no, I don't want to do that. And I was like, <laughs> and then she said, and forget the layout, she was like, I'm f***ing with you. Uh, and I was like, don't do that. I just, please. Uh, and, uh, and Carrie was someone who, like, we met, and she lives, in, she lives um, off of Crenshaw on South Central. We met her at a Starbucks. And she was this, like, really fun woman. And she was like, okay, I'll do it. Except that she didn't want to do it. And so it was like, okay, and it was one of those, I was with my producer, Tamara. Uh, we had a few people, Tamara Rizmer was great. She was responsible for a lot of the outreach. And it was one of those things where I was out here, I was out in LA, I was like, I think we should probably interview her tomorrow if she's, and they called her tomorrow. She's like, hmm, I don't, I don't know, just maybe no, just call me back later. But I was like, but I'm out, eh, I don't know. And, but that happened six times. And so every time we'd come out there, tomorrow would go visit her and like would tend garden with her and would, you know, bring her flowers or bring her chocolates and develop that relationship where at a certain point, Carrie, who could not care less about this, like what we're doing, she was like, I'll do it for you. Tomorrow, like at a certain point tomorrow, I was like, you need to, and so she finally did it. Like, and she didn't even realize we were coming. We showed up the day at a plan and she was painting her house. She was in her like painting clothes and was like, oh, right. Oh, we were here? Oh, okay. Um, but sorry, sorry for the long, winding story, but then oh, when good. you get to a point where, you know, and this is not a clip you showed, but, you know, you ask her, well, why did you, you know, was basically the sort of, st- the, the, the stereotype that a lot of people have, and I want to say a lot of people, a lot of white people have in America, is that this group of black jurors just voted to acquit the black guy. Um, and they were just protecting him. And, you know, that she gave voice to something and when asked, saying that essentially this was payback and that's why she voted the way she did, um, sort of was the first time anyone had actually sort of said that. And so, you know, again, by contrast to the very intellectual response of the of way Yolanda dealt with the evidence, this was an emotional response to her history of living in this city and living as a black woman in America and experiencing what she's experienced. Um, so that's why she, in like, is one more... I mean, we can, it's a different discussion about the validity of, of what a juror's role is. And, you know, that's our justice system. But they, those two women encapsulated, again, when we think of, oh, all these black women or black people voted the way they voted because it's like, no, they're both black, they're both women. And they voted the way they voted for two very different mm-hmm, reasons. Mm-hmm. And that was fortunate and that those viewpoints could, have, that were, could be expressed this way. Yeah. I also think it's really instructive for filmmakers out in our audience who are thinking, oh, I'll never get that interview, I'll never get that interview. Just keep showing up and paint I mean, yeah, I mean, the, the, yes, insofar as perseverance is a very necessary quality in general, it was um, mandatory in this exercise. I think that if we had given up um, we, with a lot of people, it, we wouldn't have got... We, we needed to be persistent, mm-hmm. um, and uh, she's certainly one example. But it's also it's a motivating force when you know there's all these sort of you know collect these groups of people, and the idea that you're telling you're you're making a film, but the film the body of the film are these voices and these people, and the authenticity of that document is based on the first person voices of the people who live through these events, whether it is the UCLA-USC game in 1967, mm-hmm. or the trial in 1994, 
And so however much I had sort of, you know, architecturally set this up to want to tell this story, you know, with this scope, if three and a half hours in, you get to the trial and no one in the prosecution is in the film, and you have journalists just sort of saying, mm-hmm. and then this is what happens, and you're in sort of a third person, it ceases to be what it is mm-hmm. and what it's supposed to be, and I think it gets waylaid very quickly. So there are places where you make the persistence is a survival mechanism. Mm-hmm. You're like, I'm doing this thing, and if this doesn't work, what was the point? Mm-hmm. And so I think you can have that thing in your head where, yes, you have to be perseverant and persistent, but sometimes you know when you have to be especially perseverant mm-hmm. and persistent. It's, good, it's a good motivating force. How long did it take you to do the whole film? Um, basically two years. Two years. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Um, should we take questions from the audience? I don't know how you guys... Yeah. Coming to the red... Hi. Um, So I've watched the whole film now, and one of the most powerful moments for me were the or was the images of the attack. And I was just wondering if you had any reservations about including those very gruesome images in the film. Um, No, um, because I felt that they were necessary, and I felt that um, I had an experience where Bill Hodgman, who is the Deputy DA, who's in the film, um, bless you, gave me uh, a presentation that he still gives, that he gives to law enforcement now, where he took me through a a sort of a half hour of of, of that night and what happened with all the cotton and the whole thing, including his breakdown of what he believed to be um, how those, those murders happened. And when I saw him make that presentation, and then he, he culminated the presentation with those photos, um, I know how I reacted to them, especially after, at that point, over a year of having been working on this film, and knowing where my mind had taken and what all of this, you know, what the trial had been about, and to sort of see these photos so starkly, you know, presented to me, really crystallize what got lost and what needed to be sort of focused on in terms of um, the two victims themselves, the brutality of the crime, and I think it, I think it, people without having, people need to engage with that and to really understand what got sort of where, where, where things um, got waylaid in our, in our process during that trial. And so I also, so I thought, no, I need to, I need mm-hmm. to show these. Having said that, I would not have just shown them if um, during the interview with, with uh, Mr. Hodgman, I, ha- I mean, I wanted him to see, I wanted to see how well he could sort of do the same thing on camera that he did in giving him the presentation, and that he was so clinically able to take us through the events of that night according to his um, sort of obsessive thought and, and research um, and retracing of said steps. It was only because he did it so clinically that I felt that gave me license to be able to use the photos in that way. I think if I hadn't had him as a vehicle, I would not have used them because would, they would have felt sensationalist, and I, didn't, I wouldn't have wanted to do that. Um, but I really just think that people need to engage with that because I think that says, speaks to a lot where those caught up in the politics, not wrongly just the politics of what happened, 
I think, and can sort of explain away in their brain about you know their feelings about OJ, however they want to mm-hmm. come. I think when you sort of look at that, it changes your thought process a little bit. And so I didn't have reservations, but that was my thought process behind using them. Mm-hmm. Hi, thanks for coming. Um, if you're old enough to have lived through the trial like I am, and perhaps you are, it's impossible to not come away from that media assault 20 years ago and not have a personal presumption of guilt or innocence, or even larger than that, an opinion about who O.J. is and what he's all about, Mm -hmm. what kind of person he is. Uh, And I'm wondering, that's better, Uh, (laughs) I'm wondering uh, for you as a filmmaker, uh, probably coming into this project with your own belief system about O.J., do you as a filmmaker try to wipe your slate clean and come in more with a neutral head? Or do you embrace your preconceptions and be sort of open to the surprises that might come from the education that you get in the process? Um, Well, in some ways, like we are who we are, so we bring our entire life experience to a film when you're doing it. I think with this, very consciously, Yes, I have my belief system. Yes, I have my opinion about OJ. Yes, I have my thought about whether he's guilty or innocent. But I was also doing something that I was telling a story about one of the more more divisive um, men and sort of cases um, in 20th century America and certainly in the last 50 years. And what my goal in telling that story was to incorporate and include um, those on these opposite sides to try to get to a point where you sort of see how this all came to be. And the only way I could do that is to do the first thing that you said, which was completely check my biases and my opinions um, or put, put them aside. Um, because I don't think I would have gotten very far with a lot of those people, even in engaging them you know, from the get-go to get them to sit in a chair, if they sensed that I had any agenda in terms of the story I was telling. I didn't. I just wanted them to sit and talk about their experiences, be it as a cop um, mm-hmm. who's worked in Los Angeles for 35 years, you know, leading up to that point, um, or a member of the prosecution who's been pilloried by the public, or a juror who's been the same thing, or just a friend of OJ's who's sort of not still sure what to do with their feelings one way or the other about who he was at one point and who he might have become. And so I really presented myself in that way as if not, you know, somewhere between an empty slate but an empathetic person who just wanted to have people speak openly about their experiences without judgment and without a sense that I had some political agenda because I didn't. And I don't think if I, I think I, if I presented myself in any way differently, I don't think I would have gotten very far. Um, and so I, whether I, so that was conscious, but I, it was also sort of at a certain point uh, intuitive um, throughout the process. Hi, um, I'm just curious, was there any input you received from the Goldman family while you made this film? Uh, I understand they own some rights to the trial. Was there anything they wanted you to include or take out while you were making this? Um, well, Fred Goldman's in the film. So, how are you feeling? Um, I mean, no, I don't, 
even if you're making a film, you make the film you're going to make, and the people who are in it don't get an editorial say. And they, I mean, that's part of also the process when you're engaging people to understand. They look. I don't have any. I'll sit and talk to anybody for as long as they want to talk to me about what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. But there is a sort of in that way, you know, editorially, you can't have anyone have input into what you're doing. And 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 the Goldman family nor anybody else sort of gave us any grief in that way. And everyone understood what we were doing and trusted us enough with this story. I think relatively with this story, frankly, and one of the reasons I think people ultimately participated is that you have all these people who um, have steadfastly um, and very uh, aggressively avoided um, talking about this. And they've, you know, for the last 20 years, mm -hmm. and there's been a lot of people who have been banging on their door and by and large, these are people that have been feeding the industry that sort of turned the trial into a circus in the first place. And a lot of the things that get done are, are very sensational, and they are not done well. And or, so I think that, that I think we arrived at a time when we said we're doing something that's this big with this perspective. Mm -hmm. It's not about this thing. It's not about whether OJ is guilty or innocent. It's really trying to take a a longer view to try to understand what this was and really this is an historical document. I think people trusted us and, want, and like were open to talking in a way that they were not used to when it came to this subject. And so in, I think with that just came a basic trust that we were sort of not after anything so people just let us do that. So you're talking about the subjects being kind of, it's their story in a way. I think for those of us that lived through it, I was you know, 11, 12, and 13. It's partly all of our story in some small way. We all have memories about it and interacted with it. How do you think, what was your relationship with wanting OJ in the film, wanting to interview him? How would he have changed that? How would that have shifted your scope, your perspective? Did you wrestle with that? Um. I mean, frankly, uh, I can tell you that I always had a general desire and ambition to have OJ in the film because what filmmaker worth the salt wouldn't want the opportunity to interview OJ in jail. I also knew that it was very unlikely that it would happen, and it wasn't as if the dynamic was set up when I initially had these conversations with ESPN where they were like, okay, so you're going to get OJ, and it's going to be this thing, and mm -hmm. that's, the, that's not what this was. And... Knowing what I wanted, to, the story I wanted to tell, I honestly did not spend a lot of time on this thing that, frankly, I knew was never going to happen. Um, I wanted to tell the story I wanted to tell, and even insofar as I thought of OJ as a as a character in this film, I frankly would have, you know, put him in the last half hour of the film. I don't know if I could have gotten away with that, <laughs> but like he's not a reliable narrator. You know, so like I would not have exactly sort of been able to tell the story I wanted to tell with him uh -huh. dominating the story. And by the way, it's not as if he's not in the film. Uh -huh. So like it, I wasn't I sort of, I wasn't burdened by this at all. And in fact, when I finally officially reached out to him, I mean, I wanted to do all the work. I wanted to sort of talk to as many people um, on the phone, in person, understand who wasn't going to talk to me, understand sort of the different camps here and there before I approached him, and I did. I, I, I sent him an email after I'd done, the whole, I'd done 70 interviews and said, here's the thing. I'm doing this film. I've interviewed this many people across all these different parts of your life. 
Um, it's really long, it's really thorough. Um, I would love for you to be a part of it, whether you wanna give me an interview for 15 minutes or a whole week, I'll take it. Um, and he didn't respond and that was that. So I think the film's better because of it. Hello, um, thank you so much for being here and I'm very happy to um, have the opportunity to ask you a question. And what I would like to know is, was there any point in the filmmaking process that your sort of vision or goal for the overall film changed, maybe through a discovery or an interview? Um, no, I mean, this is sort of what's interesting about this, and I sometimes don't know if I'm saying the wrong thing, because when you think of documentaries, and this wasn't as much of a, this was sort of a search for this story insofar as you're searching constantly for the closest and most prominent voices um, to tell the, the, the story that you're trying to tell. But I would have never been able to get anywhere if I hadn't sort of, again, figured out this architecture before I started. You know, and this is a very reported story between everything that happened during the trial itself, everything that's been talked about, the murder, and all this sort of then the, the history. In fact, what's kind of underreported is, frankly, OJ's biography. There's less of out there about him than you think. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's a sort of, there was a general sort of searching just to try to discover who he was at these different parts of his life through the lens of these people professionally or personally who actually spent real time with him. Um, but I sort of, and so there was discovery within that as far as the character study um, and trying to sort of, again, reach a threshold of, of or cross the threshold as far as of intimacy with him personally to, to give you a real understanding of that um, evolution or evolution, de-evolution of, of a human being. Um, but I kind of knew what I was doing. The whole, I kind of knew what my plan was. I think if I didn't have, I didn't speak, I spent a lot of time before I ever picked up a phone to call anybody reading and thinking and researching and writing to figure out what I wanted to do. And I think if we, I was less, you know, there was less of a plan in that regard, I would have been at sea in a way that would not have, would have made people much more, much, much less responsive to me. And so there's a lot less discovery, I think, within the process of these interviews than maybe you think there might be. Mm. There were smaller things like, Ron Shipp, who you see in this first part as a guy who was a kid in California who idolized OJ and went to the USC-UCLA game in 1967. And like you saw that, which is like, I didn't know that part of his story. I didn't know that he was connected to OJ in that profound uh, and deep and even chronologically as long of a, of a fashion when I knew he was a friend of OJ's who was a cop who testified against him during the trial that's why I wanted to interview him. But it's sort of like, and this is where the benefit of the, the scale and the scope of it, because there's probably a reason why there's no, no one knew that, because no one would ever ask him about that. Mm -hmm. um, so when I sit down with someone like that, and I'm asking, like I do a lot of people, to talk about you know, who they are, where they're from, and how they fit into the landscape of Los Angeles and the landscape of a black kid growing up in Los Angeles. Oh, and he played football, and how this, it's like, oh, well, he, he ends up sort of, you know, sort of fulfilling a sort of certain narrative need of a guy, who of a kid who, who idolized O.J. And that was sort of very fundamental to understanding the impact that O.J. had 
on, on, on people in general, but also as a, on a black kid um, in America and in Los Angeles. And so like little nuggets like that, like, I didn't know that, so that's a sense of discovery. And there are little things like that here and there, but not on some huge thing, on some huge level, like to get back to the juror thing, did I know that Carrie Bess was gonna tell me that she voted to acquit OJ because of Rodney King and that it was payback? No, but like there weren't as many moments like that as you might think, because mm. I sort of understood where most people were coming from. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for being here. It's great. Very interesting. So much more than I realized. Um, my question for you is Was this meant to be for OJ? I mean, was his trajectory for what you just said, this fame at this early age, these enormous gifts? that somehow became corrupted. Um, do you think there was no other place for him to go than where he ended up? Oh, I think there was plenty of places for him to go. I mean, I, I don't know, I can't, you know. I mean, I would say, like, I might be a pretty pessimistic, cynical person, but to think that that's the place that OJ was destined to end up is pretty dark. <laughs> uh, and so I would like to hope that, like, so, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I think it's uncanny, um, both what OJ has come to embody and symbolize as far as the sort of narrative of race in America, certainly during the trial. I think it's uncanny the, it, when you look at his trajectory and you look at when he came to be at that time, speaking about the sort of juxtaposition of him versus the movement of black athletes and the, 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 the politicization of that existed in him desiring to live for the self versus the group and, um, and live a me-first life and really go towards a superficial place, I think speaks to over the trajectory of these 50 years, which will be literally we're in the 50th year since 1967, I think sort of, um, I think speaks to this weird chronology about how our cultural society has devolved and the superficiality that has set in. He came up in the most substantial of times and he became this ultra-superficial ultra being. And it starts off with how superficially beautiful he was and what he, how he was rewarded for that. And I think that in that way, his life is instructive. Um, and so I think that it's sort of strange the way he has become this symbolic character for us to really, symbolic American character that touches on so many you know, deep America, these profound American themes. And so I think that's why this story resonates the way it does. Um, and so whether he was destined to end up the way he ended up, no, I don't believe that. But clearly there is, if you believe in sort of, you know, certain cosmic forces, it's, it's strange the way his tale um, sort of speaks to 50 years of culture in America. Last question. Anybody? She had a question. Make it a good one. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> so, um, is this working? Okay, yeah. there we go. Um, we really noticed the Ron Ship thread, but also there's some other threads, like the agent, for instance. So there's all these 
character arcs that you sort of unbraid and then let run through the film. And I'm wondering about how, post-interview, you sort of decompress and think, how am I going to pick these threads out and, and help them really shine in the way I want them to? So I think the agent is really interesting to me um, because of how he shows up toward the very end. And I wonder if you could talk about that process for yourself and showing how he was surrounded by these people. Um. It's a great question. Uh, I think that's sort of part of the basic, my goal as a filmmaker, especially um, in doing films that are interview-based, that I, even though these people are technically talking heads the way we would describe them, they're real, live, flesh human beings who are with real lives and personalities and uh, trajectories within a narrative. And so I want you to understand them as characters within this story and that there was this sort of, again, this greater canvas of people who not just came into contact with either OJ or, you know, for instance, the tri- you know, or an actor in the trial or around the murder, but they also, all, by and large, they all lived in Los Angeles and had lives, and so they fundamentally were a part of this story and sort of what this place was and, and where, you know, sort of, you know, where we started to it and where you sort of evolve to in the film that I understood that it would be much more effective to have all these people exist as a part of a landscape before you understand where they're directly involved with the narrative you think you're watching. And I think it sort of ends up contributing to this, you know, you know the oral history in a different way. Mm-hmm. And so, um, like I said, I didn't know everything that I would get out of everybody except that I had a general desire to be inclusive of you know this entire chronology with every as much as I could with every single person I interviewed, um, in terms of how I would employ those arcs or try to utilize or maximize those arcs after I'd done the interview. Again, I sort of had a sense with most of them, not maybe without every piece of information, but where I wanted them to fit in and where where people had. Um, some of it's mechanical because you get to a point where you might be already editing the film. And you know where there are th- places that you actually need more, vo- you know, have more voice to, and sort of, you know, oh, you're someone who grew up in Brentwood. That's great. I can ask you about that, and you can help me establish this neighborhood as a place in Los Angeles. Um, oh, you're also someone who's a helicopter pilot who shot the found the Bronx. You know, it's like, and so it's sort of a it works in all these different ways. And as far as the agent himself. You know, uh, you know, we interviewed him, Mike, very, re- I mean, relatively late in the process. And he's a good example of someone who, you know, getting back to the desire to really try to pierce, you know, these sort of concentric, you know, sort of these concentric circles of OJ's existence. And you're trying to get as close as you can to someone who was, was spent so much time with him, was a part of a decision-making process that understood sort of the private life of him in a very fundamental way, that when I got the opportunity to interview someone like that, I sort of, it's like, oh, it's like I couldn't, he was, by, he was the longest interview we did, and I understood his role later in the film, and, but I also knew that, you know, again, from the standpoint of he's another guy who idolized OJ, but that mm-hmm. there was, you know, this period of time where before the murders took place that he was going to be essentially the closest um, person I could find to be able to just sort of give, you know, sort of testify to who OJ was as a person, you know, I just sort of, you know, there wasn't a lot of flaw. All I could tell you is that you sort of go, you know, what role he played at at any given part, 
and that he ends up where he ends up in the story, you know, I sort of you have a sense of what you're doing before you're doing it, and how you sort of tease him out is sort of a just through thought and editing, and I don't know. Great. Well, I don't know if I answered that question. Um, I hope that everybody does go home and finish watching parts two, three, four, and five. Um, it is really a tour de force, and we are really lucky to have had you come and talk to us right. about oh, it. Thank, thank you, you so much you. for your time, and thanks to everybody for coming. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.